Well, there are a lot of things that are very important in our lives. There are a lot of such valuable things that we focus on. We have families and spouses and our children and our parents. We have finances and education and community and church. We have jobs and careers and health and hobbies. We have homes and cars and financial portfolios. So many important and valuable things. There are also lots of important and valuable things for the church too. I mean, there's such valuable things to focus on. We have families and church and older folks and marriages. We have worship and music. We have teaching and preaching. We have care and love and prayer. We have the building and grounds. We have doctrine and theology and evangelism and spiritual growth. So many important and valuable things. So often in our lives, these things compete with each other for dominance. Our children's lives can be so full of activities that their priorities start to take over our families. We can elevate the the want of things and the pursuit of careers to dominate all other areas of our lives. Jobs can consume more and more of our lives, becoming more valuable in our experience than with our families or with our church. In church, things can often compete with one another for dominance too. Worship and singing can overtake teaching and preaching. Children and youth overshadow families and parenting. Keeping the the church pretty and tidy over expanding ministries. Being a friendly church to being a church on fire for Jesus Christ. So many important and valuable things compete with each other to have supremacy. Often in our lives, it can be hard to figure out, you know, what is that number one important priority? It can be hard to single out the most important thing that we value because at differing times in our lives, we have differing values that dominate. The same is true of church. It's hard to keep the main thing the main thing. Stephen Covey once said, the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. Well, what's the main thing? If it's so important to keep the main thing, the main thing, then it's critically important for us to know what is the main thing. Well, our topic over the next three weeks is what I believe is the main thing of the church. Well, some would say the main thing of the church is Jesus. And of course that's right, right? Of course it's all about Jesus, That is very true. He's our Savior. He's our all in all. The church is his very bride. Everything we do, we do to glorify him. We do to worship him. From the cleaning of the church to the giving of our tithes and offerings. From the the yard work to teaching a Sunday school class. All our offerings of worship. All our offerings to glorify Jesus Christ. But what did Jesus say is the main thing? For the church. Well, some might say that the main thing of the church is the Bible. It's all about the Bible because, after all, the the Bible presents absolute truth. We wouldn't even know who Jesus was without the Bible, without the inerrant, inspired Word of God. God's Word is our singular authority for life, for truth, for hope, for wisdom, for knowledge of God Himself. God was so wise to give us His Word. For without it, we wouldn't, wouldn't know. We'd be so confused. We'd be so lost. 
Yet, of course, we don't worship the Bible. As important as it is, we worship the author of the Bible. The Bible is God's given tool for us to know him and to understand how to live. So what does the Bible say is the main thing for the church? You see, the Bible and Jesus are the best resources by far for telling us what the main thing is. And they tell us over and over and over again. So what does the Bible and Jesus say the main thing of the church is? The gospel. The gospel. That word gospel is a Greek word, eulongelion. The prefix eu refers to something good or pleasant. We have a word that we use, eulogy. Starts with that same prefix, eu. And a eulogy is something good that's given of another person at a funeral service. Now, the last part of that word is angelion, is the word for message. Do you hear a word in there? Do you hear angel in there? See, an angel is a messenger of God. An angelion is a message. The word you, angelion, means good message, means good news. Did you know that Jesus proclaimed the gospel? That Jesus proclaimed the good news. The book of Mark and verse in chapter 1 verses 14 and 15 it says Now after John was arrested Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled the kingdom is at hand repent and believe in the gospel The gospel the good news that Jesus taught was to repent to turn from your sins to turn to him the Messiah the savior the king of the kingdom of God is here. Turn and trust. In Luke 4, 43, Jesus says, I must preach the gospel of the kingdom to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus' message, the, the gospel message, he's, he's regularly described as proclaiming and preaching the gospel. While talking to his disciples about the the cost of being a disciple, he equates sacrificing for him with sacrificing for the gospel. In Mark 10, 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children to land for my sake and for the gospel. Jesus proclaimed the power and the importance of the gospel when he said in Matthew 24, 14, that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You see, spreading the gospel message to the whole world is the joy and the responsibility of his church. The book of Mark records Jesus' great commission in Mark sixteen fifteen, saying, And Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. To the whole creation. And in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said to go and make disciples. The process of making a disciple must begin with the proclamation of the gospel. There is no other way to make a disciple. Jesus commands us to go into the world and proclaim the gospel. The message of Jesus was the gospel. The message Jesus told his church to tell the world was the gospel. 
So what does the other parts of the Bible say, other passage to say about the importance and the priority of the gospel? It could not be any more clear. The Bible in Acts 825, 840, 1470, 1521 It says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul talks about his determination, his life goal, at the end of Romans, in Romans 15, 20, where he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. Paul's life goal was to preach the gospel to people who had never heard it. Turn, if you'd like to, to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, which are very, very strong words about the uniqueness, about the exclusivity of the gospel. In Galatians 1, 6 through 9, Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you've received, let him be accursed. Strong, powerful words. See, the proclaiming of the gospel is so important, so essential, so central, so indispensable, so doctrinally pure and right that if anyone on earth, and as Paul says, if anyone from heaven would preach something different, the Bible says, let them be accursed. Let them be eternally condemned. Let them be anathema. See, there are areas of disagreement that we can have with other denominations, other brothers and sisters in Christ. There are things that we don't all agree upon where where we need to show grace and humility. However, If we differ on the gospel, then one of us stands ready to be accursed by God. See, there is no agreeing to disagree when it comes to the gospel. There is only one gospel. There's only one. And it's clear. It's precise. It's accurate. In seminary, we we used to use the phrase when talking about theological conclusions... Is that a hill that you're willing to die on? Meaning that if you believe it so much that you would literally choose to die 
before you would change your belief. Folks, the truth of the gospel is a hill that I'm willing to die on. The truth of the gospel is a hill that we all must be willing to die on. Listen to Paul's words to his apprentice in the faith, Timothy. 2 Timothy 1, 8-10. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel. By the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, which now has been made manifest through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Paul tells Timothy two important things about the gospel. One, the gospel is worthy of our suffering. If there is something in your life over which suffering is good, it's suffering for the gospel. The gospel is worthy of our suffering. Secondly, Paul describes how Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality through the gospel. Think about this now. Think of these words. This is what he's saying. Jesus abolished death. Jesus brought life. Jesus brought immortality through the gospel. That's how important the gospel is. That's how powerful the good news is. Colossians 1 says that the gospel is the word of truth, that it's bearing fruit throughout the word. The gospel is the truth. In the passage, that's one of the best summaries of the gospel. Paul comes right out and says the gospel is of first importance. The gospel is the preeminent truth for the church. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3. It says, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel is of first importance. See, folks, the gospel was Jesus' message, and it was the gospel that Jesus commanded us to take to the whole world. It was the gospel that the apostles and the early church leaders went from city to city to city proclaiming. It was for the sake of the apostle of the gospel that the apostle Paul so passionately pursued his missionary calling. It was for the sake of sharing the gospel that so many in the early church suffered, were persecuted, oppressed for the sake of the gospel. It is the truth of the gospel, the one and only gospel, the gospel that never changes, that must be defended and proclaimed. See, this teaching of the gospel is so central, so critical to the church, that to teach anything different, to teach any distortion of the gospel is to put yourself in the place of being accursed and condemned by God. 
Romans 1.16 says that it is the gospel that is the power of salvation. There's no salvation without the gospel. It's the gospel alone. God's power-packed message of grace and forgiveness. The gospel. God's power that brings salvation. It is the gospel that is changing lives and destinies of millions upon millions upon millions of people all over our globe. And it's changing our lives today. What's the most important, the most critical, the most essential teaching and proclamation of the church? It's the gospel. If the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing, the main thing for the church is the gospel. And what's the main focus of the gospel? Jesus The gospel is the story of Jesus. So how would you answer this question? Why did Jesus die? That's perhaps the most significant question any person could ever ask. Why did Jesus die? If your child came up to you, if a niece or nephew or grandchild comes up to you and says to you, why did Jesus die? How would you answer that question? If a friend or a co-worker Ask you, why did Jesus die? How would you answer that question? If someone asked you the most poignant question that gets to the very heart of the gospel message, why did Jesus die? Do you have an answer? Answering that question is what the rest of the sermon is about. Well, let's look at a good way to summarize the gospel by looking at four main characters of the gospel message. There's God, mankind, Jesus, and you. This is really a a great way to organize your thoughts, a great way to remember, and a great way to present the gospel by these four characters, God, mankind, Jesus, and you. First, let's look at God. The main point is that God is holy and God will judge sin. 1 Samuel 2.2 says, There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Isaiah 6.3 says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. These verses teach us a very simple truth. God is holy. He's pure. He's completely and totally without sin. There's not one shadow of any wrong in him. Sin will not stand in the presence of a holy God. See, another reality about our God is that he holds each person, every single person, accountable for their own lives. We will all stand before God, each one of us, to be held accountable for our actions. Acts 17.31 says, And God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed, Jesus. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Romans 2, 5 through 8, it's very powerful. But because of our hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up for yourself wrath 
on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. See, our God is holy. And our God will punish sin. That brings us to the next character in our message of the gospel, and that's mankind, man. The main point of mankind is sin, separation from God. See, all of mankind has a problem. We all have a problem. We are not holy. We are not pure. We're full of sin by nature and by choice. And that sin puts us under God's judgment. Our sin has serious eternal consequences. Psalm 51.5 says that we are sinners from birth. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2, 1-3 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that does not work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Sin, separation from God. It's not some small issue. It's not something that just gets better by itself. This is not something that just needs a little corrective self-help psychology. No, we are sinners. This is very serious. No amount of effort that we can ever do. No amount of effort. Anything can earn our own salvation. We always fall short of meeting God's holy standard. And because we fall short, because we are sinners, by nature and by choice, we have actually earned something. We've earned something. Romans 6.23 tells us, says, for the wages of sin is death. Oh, we've earned something. We've earned death. Death and alienation from God is what we've earned. But the second half of Romans 6.23 transitions us to the next character in our gospel message. The central person of the gospel, Jesus Christ. The second half of Romans 6.23 says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Christ. What we were totally powerless to do, Jesus did What we could never do, Jesus did. Jesus is the Savior of mankind. Jesus is both fully God, totally divine, and yet fully man, incarnate man. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 2. Verse 5 says that. In Hebrews 7, 26, it describes Jesus as a high priest. It says of Jesus, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, 
exalted above the heavens. See, Jesus is the unique Son of God. He's the only one that could bridge the chasm between God's perfection and God's holiness and our sinfulness and our depravity. Because Jesus is holy, because he's innocent and unstained, he alone is the only acceptable atoning sacrifice for sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our place. He took the penalty of our sin upon himself. He died and rose again, providing the one and only way to God and everlasting life. Romans 3, verses 21 through 26, so powerfully teaches us this. It says, But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show that his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here's the picture from these verses. Jesus did two very important things on the cross. The first is, in his death, that it was accepted by God as a payment For our sins. Jesus opened the door of reconciliation by satisfying God's wrath against us because of our sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he took our punishment for our sins in our place. Isaiah 53. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. The Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That means he's the atoning, appeasing, satisfying sacrifice for sins. But Jesus not only took our sins and their penalty, but he also gave us something on the cross. If Jesus only took the penalty for our sins, we'd only been moved from guilty to neutral. We'd still be lost. We still wouldn't have God's acceptance. See, Jesus not only took something for us, but he gave something to us. There's something very important he did to us that we might be accepted by God. The other very important thing that Jesus did to us on the cross was to justify us so that we could stand before God accepted, so that we could stand before God in Christ's righteousness. Jesus covers us with his righteousness so that we are welcomed into the family of God. See, God's righteousness was totally satisfied. His righteousness was satisfied by Jesus being the atoning sacrifice for our sins, taking the penalty of our sins. And his righteousness was satisfied by the righteousness 
of Christ, being imputed to us, being credited to our account. We are accepted into God's family because Jesus' holiness and righteousness were credited and imputed to us, his righteousness given to us. See, Jesus not only wiped out the bad, but he gave us the good. Jesus suffered for our sins so that he might bring us to God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way to God. For no one else could ever do what Jesus did. Only Jesus could be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, redeeming our lives from the just penalty of our sins. And only Jesus could give us his perfection and put it on our account and justify us. So we could stand before God, accepted into his family. Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There is something about that name. Yet the gospel message is still not quite complete. See, the last character in our gospel presentation is you, is us. God is the holy judge on the one side. Man is the sinner separated from God. Jesus in the middle. Jesus the Savior. Jesus took the penalty of our sin, gave us his righteousness. And then there's us. There's you and the decision to be made. See, the gospel is not some theory to test. The gospel is not some formula that you follow. The gospel is not some truth that you just apprehend in your brain. No, the gospel is personal. It calls to us. It calls to you and to me to believe. It's a life-changing, life-altering reality. The gospel is the central question of our lives. And no matter how hard or no matter how long you avoid the reality of the gospel, it will someday for everyone be the only thing that matters. Romans 14, 10 through 12 puts it this way. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. You see, you can respond to the call of the gospel now and by grace through faith, putting your trust in Jesus Christ, he will give you the gift of eternal life. So that in that day of judgment, you can stand accepted because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. Or you could try the Earn it yourself plan. There are millions of people on the earn it yourself plan where you try to be good enough in yourself. You put all your chips on, I'm going to do this my way. And then you'll stand before God, having rejected his son, standing in your sin, totally unprepared for God's evaluation and judgment. Or you could try another route. There's another Uh, you know, really popular way out there. It's called the sincerity route. Lots of people like to say this. It doesn't really matter what you believe just as long as you are sincere. 
You can try to put your eternal destiny on that line. Standing before a holy God, having sincerely rejected his son, you'll be completely unprepared for his righteous judgment. Because we remember, right? There is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus himself is proclaiming the gospel to us today through his word. Jesus said in Mark 1.15, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. See, today's your day. Today's the day to confess and believe. Today's your day to repent and believe. Today's your day to acknowledge Jesus as your Savior repenting of your sins. Today is your day to acknowledge Jesus as your Lord, as the very leader of your life. Today is the day of salvation. Today is your day to turn and trust, to turn and trust, to turn from your sin and to put your trust, your life, into Jesus. Remember that question? Why did Jesus die? Jesus died to reconcile lost sinners to a holy, loving God. Why did Jesus die? He died because he was the only one who could both satisfy God's justice and provide for us his righteousness. Why did Jesus die? Because God loves you. And he willingly gave his one and only son that if we would believe in him, we will not perish, but have eternal life. He died for our sins to provide eternal life, to provide an eternal relationship with the creator God. That's the gospel. That's the most important proclamation of the church. And that's the most important reality of our lives. Let's pray. Father, now we come to you. We come to you in the the honesty of the moment. We're not hiding anything. Nothing could be hidden from you. We're just trying to be honest in these moments of prayer and evaluate. Lord, help us to see. Are we on the earn it yourself plan? Are we on the sincerity plan? Or have we actually gone the way of Jesus? Have we actually come to him and turned from our sin and put our trust in him? Lord, help us to evaluate. And Lord, if we've done that, if we've come to Jesus, fill us with thanksgiving, fill us with awe about our Savior and all that he has done. Just overflow our lives with the amazing love you have for us and your son. If we've not made that choice, then Lord, I pray you would fill us with conviction. Fill us with burden. Fill us with a a desire 
to seek you and to know you and to give our lives to you. The most important proclamation, the most important reality of the gospel. And we thank you how lost we would be without it. In Jesus' name and for his sake, our beloved Savior, amen.